All right, biohackers, who doesn't love a yummy, creamy whey protein shake? Oh, it is such a treat. And I really love it as a meal replacement, post-workout recovery, maybe even a midday snack. So this is why I have to tell you about Puri Protein Powder. I absolutely love the bourbon vanilla flavor and the chocolate, but I think I got to go with the, the vanilla as my favorite. So it's smooth, it's delicious. And you know what else? It's pretty awesome that the flavors come from real natural ingredients like the bourbon vanilla seeds from Madagascar. And let's talk about quality because there's a lot of junk whey protein on the market that I would not recommend. So the Puree whey protein, it comes from pasture-raised cow's milk with no hormones, no GMOs, and no pesticides. This is because Puree's mission has always been to be the best at offering pure, clean, and superior products that, that support health and well-being. And what I think truly sets them apart is that they are fully transparent with their product testing. Every batch is third-party tested against more than 200 contaminants and certified clean by the Clean Label Projects. Not all brands can say this. Plus, each product contains a QR code so you can personally scan it and review the test results at home. I know you're excited to try it out. So what you're going to do is head on over to puri.com slash biohackerbabes. That's P-U-O-R-I.com slash biohackerbabes. And then make sure you use promo code biohackerbabes at checkout to save 20%. All right, let's get back to the show. We're digging deep and asking the questions we need to ask. Years of stress and not just emotional. I was depleting my body. I was malnourished. I'm working out like crazy. I'm eating all these healthy foods. How could I not be well? We have to get back to the basics. We can change the way our genes are expressed. Anyone that wants to improve their health or upgrade their health, they should be biohacking. My name is Renee. And I'm Lauren. We are the Biohacker Babes. We're sisters and we're joining forces to empower you to become your own biohacker and upgrade your life. The Biohacker Babes podcast aims to create insight into the body's natural healing abilities, strengthen your intuition, and empower you with techniques and modalities to optimize your health and wellness. Because life is too short to not feel your best every single day. This podcast offers health, fitness, and nutritional information and is designed for educational purposes only. You should not rely on this information as a substitute for, nor does it replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have any concerns or questions about your health, you should always consult with a physician or other healthcare professional. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Welcome to the Biohacker Babes podcast. Today we have a guest all the way from Australia. We have Steph Lowe today. And before I bring her on, I just wanted to share her bio with you so you can get a little sneak peek on her background. So Steph Lowe is a sports nutritionist, yogi, and founder of The Natural Nutritionist, a hub for celebrating the importance of real food. And she is also the author of Low Carb Healthy Fat Nutrition. With a passion for spreading a positive message about real food and the incredible effect it has on performance, Steph launched The Natural Nutritionist in 2011 and is on a mission to inspire others to make health a priority in their lives. Along with running The Natural Nutritionist, Steph also hosts the podcast, the Real Food Real. She's also the resident nutritionist for Melrose Health and has an online 12-week program called 
low carb, high fat endurance. So welcome Steph to the show. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Wonderful. Yeah, this is fun. So it's Monday. It's an evening for us or late afternoon for Renee. It's Tuesday morning for you, right, Steph? Yeah, it's 8.30 a.m. So it's my terrible dad joke that I'm in the future. But yes, you guys are obviously the evening prior. <laughs> I love Does it. anything yeah. fun happen on Tuesday this week? <laughs> you can tell us in the future. Um, it's been pretty normal so far. Yoga and coffee <laughs> and walking. Pretty, pretty low key to start the day and then into a few podcasts with you guys. That sounds beautiful. I hope that is what my Tuesday morning looks like. <laughs> Start planning. Yeah. So what's life like right now in Australia with all yeah, this going on? Yeah, for sure. So Australia's pretty good. Like where um we've obviously been in stage three restrictions. So it's really only been um, essential workers heading out and we've been allowed to go out to exercise and to go to shopping like for groceries and things like that. But it's it's been a big change for a lot of people, especially those that are used to working at an office and then those that have older children who have been having to homeschool. I'm sure that's been very challenging. My daughter is um, 14 months, so I don't have to homeschool yet, which I'm very grateful for because that would certainly be a challenge trying to juggle a career and a, a child or children who need you to teach them lots of things. But I mean, we are starting to ease out of those restrictions now. So it's going to be slow over the next few months, but we can see a light at the end of the tunnel now. So I think most people are looking forward to it changing. I'm not really needing it to go back to normal, like because it's our new normal, but it will be nice to be able to catch up with friends and maybe travel to see our family within Australia shortly. Sure, yeah, the family stuff has really changed. But for you, you're a nutritionist and a yogi, and you've been able to do a lot, a lot of stuff virtually. So it hasn't really changed too much for you. Is that right, work-wise? Yeah, exactly. So my clinic, I do have a physical clinic that we've just temporarily closed. So we've moved all our clients to virtual. But because we've got a global presence, I was already doing a lot of virtual clients anyway, and our clients were really familiar with that offering. So it wasn't a huge change. And certainly working from home just means I'm around my daughter and my husband more. So I'm certainly not isolated in that sense. Um, It's more, as you said, family, because we have family in Queensland and family in um, Tasmania. So different states to where I am in Victoria. So that's been hard not to see them. That should change fairly soon as we open the borders. So I'm excited to be able to do a little bit of local travel. Yeah. Awesome. Sounds very similar to how it is here slowly starting to open up. So oh, that's yeah. good to hear. And people oh, are just getting a little, you know, itchy to get out. <laughs> mm, yeah, I think, I think there is, we've, we've sort of done our, done our duty now. <laughs> yeah, <right? laughs> yeah. We're ready for the next step. Awesome. Well, so yeah. So Lauren said, you know, you're a nutritionist, a yogi. Um, I would love to hear your story. Like what got you into more holistic health, n- nutrition, all that good stuff. Mm, it's a really long story. <laughs> really? We are okay, here for it. <laughs> Stop me along the way if you want to ask questions or oh, jump I'm in. I'm excited to hear. Okay. Yeah. So it starts when I was a teenager, right? So I set myself this goal of losing weight. And what started as an, an initial interest in health unfortunately quickly became quite an unhealthy obsession. So back then the world was very much low calorie and low fat. And so, you know, of course that's what I did. I unfortunately um, cut out nearly all fat from my diet and 
lost a lot of weight, but at the same time, of course, my hormones were offline. I didn't have a menstrual cycle for more than five years. And I was experiencing a lot of mental health challenges. You know, I can now see that, of course, I was depleting my body of the key nutrients it needs to make healthy hormones, the building blocks for a healthy, well-balanced brain. I didn't know that at the time, unfortunately. I wasn't a nutritionist and the world was a very different space. So I was never medicated, but I was offered pharmaceutical intervention for my mood issues. Looking back, I, I'm I know now that I knew better. I knew there was another way. So I'm really glad that I did have that intuition, even as a as a teenager, because obviously, you know, pharmaceutical intervention is needed at times, and that's a whole other conversation, but it can be a bit of a slippery slope because it doesn't address the root cause. And I'm really big on understanding what the root cause is and and working to treat that. So I... um, was really unhappy. I was really thin, but I realized that that thinness wasn't going to create happiness. So that was quite a big epiphany because on my journey, I thought that was the answer. I thought that when I got to this certain size that I would finally escape my sadness. So it was good to learn that even though it was a challenging space to be in, but I actually met someone, this is 15 years ago, who encouraged me to go gluten-free. 15 years ago, I didn't know what gluten was. There wasn't gluten-free anything available to eat or purchase. There wasn't cafes that had the GF sign or offered you know, gluten-free menus. And that was a really confronting time because I was so desperate. I was like, okay, look, I've got nothing to lose, everything to gain. I'm going to quit gluten. And for me, it was night and day. I'm not saying it's that for everybody, but it was night and day in terms of how I felt. And it was the catalyst to inspire me to understand the healing power of food. So what started as being gluten-free evolved into the real food template that I teach everyone else about today. And it was how I turned my life around, both how I felt you know, physically and mentally, but also because I was able to turn it into a career. I think part of my problem initially is that I was quite lost and lacking purpose and kind of just floating through life, partying on the weekend. I didn't have that real purpose and drive that got me out of bed every morning and that filled up my cup. So my firsthand experience inspired me to go back to study nutrition so I could become a nutritionist and teach others. And that was a huge part of my healing journey too, because I love what I do and it doesn't feel like work. And it really does, as cliche as it sounds, fill up my cup. So that I think is a huge part of the healing journey as well, because we've got to have, you know, self-love is great, but I think self-love is about contribution. So contributing to society for me was a huge part of that. So I became a nutritionist and like the rest is history. I've been practicing since 2009 now. So it's a long time, but um, I'm very grateful to be able to do what I can do every day and call it work. Yeah, that's incredible. So, so it was really was cutting out gluten that sort of propelled you onto this journey. And at what point did you realize that maybe like the low carb, low calorie style was not going to fit in also with, with the gluten part of the puzzle? Yeah. So it's a good question because certainly what we're taught at uni. So even when I went back to do my tertiary studies, it's, it's still quite archaic, unfortunately. So we have to do to the degree to get the qualifications, but most nutritionists and certainly those that practice more holistically are quite self-taught in that we do go on a journey of ongoing education where we are able to study the literature rather than curriculum that hasn't changed in a few decades. 
And so it was really uncovering the benefits of healthy fats and how we need them for everything, including a healthy brain and balanced hormones and satiety and mood control and craving management. And, you know, now I follow a lower carbohydrate approach, but that's just really relative to the food pyramid. It's not keto. It's just lower than the food pyramid, which unfortunately, as we know in the West has created a lot of our health issues because we were eating refined carbohydrates far too much, you know, 400 or 600 grams of carbohydrates per day. And that's been a huge player in the health issues that we have in 2020. Obviously, it's just one part of it, but lower carbohydrate is essentially moving towards a real food template. You still eat carbohydrates from fruit and vegetables and, you know, quality like pseudo grains, like buckwheat, if that suits you. And there's, you know, so many options relative to the individual, but it's just focusing on food with a low degree of human interference rather than food that has a high degree of human interference, which is actually food like products. They're not really food. They're low in nutrients and they shouldn't be what we should be focusing on for the majority of the time. Foods that you would find at a traditional grocery store versus a health food store, which shouldn't be called a health food store. It's just a, a food store, right? I know. <laughs> health food aisles? It doesn't really make sense when you think about it, right? Yeah, not at right. all. So just getting back to eating real food, whole foods. So that's basically the template you've built for your clients. Yeah. I mean, look, the practical application is where people usually get a little bit um, stuck. So if we define it more, it is largely a plant-based diet. So if we look at all the literature on what creates longevity, if we look at the blue zones, what creates a healthy microbiome, if we look at any of the emerging um, look at any of the emerging emerging gut research. Like it's all about fiber, right? There's not a magic pill, but it's about having a, a diet that's high in you know, soluble and insoluble dietary fiber. So we want to be eating lots of plants. So I try to get my clients and obviously our listeners today to think about building their plate, starting with non-starchy veggies. So of course you want lots of greens, but the color, like the color on your plate determines the nutrient diversity. And, and certainly color is also components like polyphenols, which feed your microbiome even further. So maybe keep it simple and think of three colors. So three non-starchy veggies, you might use lettuce and pumpkin and tomato. I know tomato is a fruit technically, but we tend to put it in the vegetable basket for the purpose of this discussion. So you want two cups with every meal. So most people then do the math. They think, all right, two cups, three meals a day, that's six cups of vegetables and not many people eat six cups of vegetables. So it can sound like quite a big jump. So like anything, like learning how to ride a bike or learning a new language, you don't become an expert straight away. So if you've done the math and you've realized that you're only having one to two cups of vegetables per day, then slow it down and just work to gradually add more. But know that six is a really reasonable um, intake six cups of vegetables per day when you are starting with plants for every meal. So I'm so curious, what do you think about the carnivore diet since that's becoming very popular <laughs> right now? Because my concern is we're fiber. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure I know what you think, but I would love to hear. <laughs> I just want to hear your answer. <laughs> no, that's okay. I mean, I keep an open mind. There are many intelligent people okay. doing it and some incredible antidotes. So we can't deny that right now. We just don't have the clinical research and that's okay because we will eventually. So I think it works for some people when they have excluded all other options. Like they've done the paleo, they've done the autoimmune paleo, they've done the food elimination diet, they've done everything they can do and they've still got symptoms. Now, if they remove the lectins, which are the, the, you know, the 
potentially problematic components in plants and they feel better, then I, I can't deny that. But my hope is that it is a short-term intervention. So perhaps they cut out the problematic foods for eight to 12 weeks, they heal their gut, they get rid of all the root causes of their symptoms. And then an ideal world would look like them introducing plants and fiber and polyphenols and everything that they need to live a long, healthy life in the long term. There's exceptions to the rule, but ultimately I think it's going to end up looking like what the low FODMAP diet is. It should be an intervention while we fix the underlying root cause. And then ideally we get back to a template where pretty much nothing is excluded. I'm not talking about, you know, inflammatory food like products from a whole food template. We should be able to tolerate everything when we've got a robust microbiome. So that's the goal to, to fix that underlying issue. I, I think that's love a that great answer. point. Yeah, I think a lot of people get really desperate for answers. So they find something that works and they really lock into that and they don't look at it as something that's short term or as an intervention, as you say. And then maybe it works for a few weeks, but at some point you have to come back to that diversity. But it's so hard because people just want to lock into one idea and become very dogmatic about our food. So how do you get clients to sort of like unleash those attachments? Yeah, well, it is about coming into the gray. So in the West, we are quite dogmatic. We get these like tribes, these groups of people that collectively connect, whether that's online or in real person, about their beliefs, whether it's veganism or keto or carnivore. And that's like cool in a way that I think connection is really important. And for a lot of people, that's what's been missing in their life up until now. But health's not found in the extremes. Health is found (laughs) in the gray. And unfortunately, we just haven't learned that yet. We've gone from low fat, to low carbon. People are afraid of fruit. You know, they're afraid of vegetables and it's gone really crazy in the space. So my job has been to dispel confusion, but to help people find a more sustainable long-term approach. Like interventions are exactly that. Like how many people do you meet who are doing low FODMAP and they're doing it forever? Like I have a real issue with that because it starves your gut because you've cut out lots of prebiotic fibrous foods and um, you've obviously put a band-aid over the issue which is still going to be there when you take the band-aid off so similar to what we were saying with carnivore in that we've got to keep looking for what we're going to be doing long term I really doubt there are going to be many people that are just eating steak and eggs long term let's hope they find their answer that involves a more nutrient-dense antioxidant-rich template I agree. Yeah. 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 Just using it as a therapeutic diet and then moving on. So you mentioned microbiome. So we know plants and fiber are really important. Is there anything about microbiome you want to dive into? Yeah. So I think absolutely the foundation. So we, anyone that I would work with, you know, the, the first goal is a real food template and we can go back to proteins and fats and carbohydrates a bit later but the reason why we do that is because it's plant predominant. So getting um, getting someone to eat more plants is the first step because diversity of your gut is directly correlated to health, right? So if you've got moderate to high gut diversity, which means you've got lots of different species and high numbers of each of those species, then that correlates with good health. So the opposite is true. If you've got low diversity, then you've often got low health. So how do we create diversity? We feed our microbiome, fiber, resistant starch, polyphenols. So all of these are found in foods. Like the obvious fiber is non-starchy veggies, but specific prebiotics like onion, garlic, asparagus, artichoke, you know, these 
beautiful vegetables that are prebiotic in nature, which means they feed our probiotics, they feed our beneficial microbes. And then resistant starch, which is found in the cooked and cooled potato or sweet potato or white rice if you eat grains, that's resistant starch. So again, resistant, so it's feeding the colony, the microbes that largely live in our large intestine. And then polyphenols, so lots of colour. So think about berries and beetroot and black rice or red rice and green tea and black tea, like beautiful foods that and drinks that, um, again, provide our microbes with this array, this buffet that keeps them alive, that keeps them thriving. And then this determines whether we have a beautiful anti-inflammatory microbe, which is the fibre-loving species that produce our short-chain fatty acids, which protect our gut wall, our the integrity of our gut and avoid conditions like leaky gut. Or if we look like if it looks too too much rich in saturated fat or too much protein or we're not feeding our microbes fiber, that will become more inflammatory because we don't have the fiber to produce the short chain fatty acids. We tend to see more inflammatory compounds being produced like LPS or, you know, it's really quite problematic when we see microbes that just are quite inflammatory because that then creates a whole host of issues, TMAO, so trimethylamine. You know, there's gases that are produced by the gut which create inflammation in the gut which can then become quite systemic. So that, as we know, can create a whole host of issues because the gut is our centre and we may experience typically, you know, the gastrointestinal symptoms but it could be leaky brain, it could be depression and anxiety or it could be a skin condition because... Our skin is our largest organ. So what's going on in the microbiome is reflected externally via the skin. So any symptom could be a root cause gut issue. It's not always the case, but it's certainly where to start and why whole food plays such an important part. You have great skin, so I know you have a great microbiome. I'm sure you're like us. You're always looking at people's skin. It's like, what's going on on the inside? Totally. (laughs) So telling. So I'm curious, I know there's a huge conversation right now in our world about immune health and the microbiome with what's happening with this virus. What do you think we're going to see down the road with clinical studies? Do you have any like hypotheses about what we're going to see in the microbiome of people that are really affected by this virus? Mm. Yeah, I think low diversity, definitely, because obviously if you've got comorbidity, so we're looking at the research, we know that the people that are at highest risk of catching COVID-19 specifically are insulin resistance, cardiovascular disease, low vitamin D. So these are all inflammatory related conditions. So the opposite is then true. If we have this beautiful anti-inflammatory gut, which comes back to having an abundance of fiber-loving species that could produce the short chain fatty acids, then we've also got great microbial diversity. So I think one of the other comorbidities that we're going to find out about is low microbial diversity. So having a low diversity will make you more susceptible to catching COVID-19 or having a pretty poor experience of it because a lot of us have probably caught it and nothing happened. We didn't know about it. Yeah. Let's hope we've got immunity though. And so I think we'll learn about that in time. The solution's in our hands though. That's the good thing is because, you know, we know that 80% or even more of our immune system is located in our gut. So what does that mean? It means that basically every choice that we make 
either creates a positive internal microbiome or a negative one. And so therefore what we eat, what we're exposed to, like pharmaceutical intervention, how we manage our stress, all of that counts because all of that impacts our gut and all of that impacts our immune system as a result. So we need to be eating well, but we need to be minimizing or getting rid of our pharmaceutical intervention. This includes the pill, which is known to interrupt the microbiome. And of course, managing our stress, which is hard to do because there's collective anxiety (laughs) around the world with change. But again, it starts with us. So having those practices at home, like meditation, mindfulness, yoga is so important because otherwise you'll be immune suppressed and you'll be higher at risk. So the irony of being stressed about this is quite unfortunate. I know the fear kills. It really Mm, is. Literally. Yeah. So how do you know if you have low diversity? Do you do any kind of gut testing? Yeah, we do a stool test. So, I mean, you don't have to, but ideally it's about getting the right information. So I always say test, don't guess. So you can make an intelligent assumption that someone's pretty um, low in diversity because they've got a whole host of symptoms. And certainly if someone's always unwell, whether that's sick every winter or, you know, lots of requirements for antibiotics or whether their history involves a lot of antibiotics or even a lot of pharmaceutical intervention, there are a lot of red flags that would indicate low diversity. And certainly giving someone a prescription for vegetables and fiber is pretty easy to do to start. But beyond that, we start to need um, a lot more information. So it is a stool test. These days we use the technology is metagenomic sequencing. So it's not sending off a, a big sample of stool to the lab to be cultured because that is all technology which can skew the results quite a lot because a petri dish is not the environment that's in your microbiome, right? So what grows on a petri dish does not look like what what is in your gut. So instead we're using metagenomic sequencing, which picks up the DNA of all the bacteria, archaea, viruses, et cetera, that live inside your gut. So it's like this big snapshot of the ecosystem of the community that's in your large, largely in your large colon, in your intestine, large intestines. So we do that swab, it goes off to the lab, and then we get this beautiful detailed report about certainly what's in your gut, so what microbes are there, whether positive or negative, but also metabolite. So this is fairly new in the gut space. Up until now, we've really only been looking at what lives in there, but now we're looking at what they are doing. So I mentioned LPS, that's hexa lipopolysaccharide. So that's a metabolite. That's not a bacteria, but that's a metabolite that's released from the cell wall of many bacteria. And that's pro-inflammatory. So we're looking at metabolites as well because short-chain fatty acids are considered metabolites. So a butyrate, for example, is not a microbe. That's a metabolite. And we need the metabolite as the main fuel source for our gut cells to keep the barrier intact, to reduce inflammation. Um, Also for serotonin production, which is fascinating because serotonin is motility. So butyrate helps us not be constipated, but serotonin is also a happy hormone. So we need fiber to produce butyrate to get serotonin. So we feel good. And so we eliminate our bowels regularly, which is a huge part of like not being toxic as well. So yeah, I think testing is incredible. We get so much information and it allows us to really focus on where to next because in someone that has a lot of dysbiosis, so a significant interruption to their ecosystem, you you can't fix it overnight. It's probably a six month journey, if not longer. And so you need to work with a practitioner to put together steps in place to rebuild because 
um, yeah, it's impossible to do it all at once. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think this is a great opportunity because we haven't talked too much on this podcast about butyrate, short chain fatty acids and how they communicate with our neurotransmitters. Could you go into that just a little bit more? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So there's quite a few well, there's three specific um, short-chain fatty acids that we talk about. So I've been talking more about butyrate, which is probably the most well-known, I, I think you would agree. Um, and how we get more butyrate production is looking at resistant starch in particular. So that's the cooked and cooled um, sweet potato, potato and white rice, as I mentioned. But we also find resistant starch in lentils and peas and beans and things like rolled oats if they're in your template, of course. We also have propionate, which is really important for gut health. It maintains blood glucose levels. So that's really important for how we feel meal to meal with factors like satiety and avoiding 3.30-itis or cravings as the day progresses. Propionate reduces inflammation, which is really important as well, because obviously inflammation in the gut can create a whole host of symptoms. It's great for controlling our appetite and again, producing serotonin. So now we can see why fiber is so important for regulating our bowels, because we need serotonin for motility to eliminate the waste. And a lot of people don't really know what a normal bowel like pattern is, but we need to be moving our bowels once, if not twice a day. And anything like less than that is considered constipation. So that's a sign that we certainly need to go back and look at serotonin production, which comes back to the foods that you're feeding your microbiome to create these anti-inflammatory compounds. We also have acetate, which is really important in fat metabolism, glucose metabolism, and the immune system. Acetate is also converted to butyrate by several bacterial species. So we want that acetate to be there for its unique role. So certainly how we metabolize carbohydrates and sugars, the foundation of our immune cells being super healthy, but then to be able to produce more butyrate. So interestingly, legumes come up here again. And legumes have been demonized, at least in kind of my world, because in the low-carb space, we also see that wrapped up in keto. And people have become really afraid of legumes, lentils, chickpeas, black beans, whatever we're talking about under that umbrella. But they always, always come up on someone's microbiome report as being a really great choice to feed a beneficial microbiome. So a lot of my clients are getting to the point where they're feeling comfortable adding these foods back in, which I think is incredible because, again, if we look at the research, the blue zones are where we have the healthiest populations in the world. They all eat largely plant-based, so very small amounts of animal protein. They're not vegan, but they do prioritize plants and they eat a lot of legumes. And so in Western countries, we're not doing that enough. And so my role tends to be how to coach people to include those foods again. And certainly for those that have eliminated legumes for digestive reasons, unpacking why that was going on and usually uncovering the root cause as to why they might've been bloating or gassy or experiencing a lot of flatulence in the past when they tried to consume foods like chickpeas or beans. What are some of the things that you come up that come up in those circumstances, reasons why they would have those symptoms? Usually it's a bacterial overgrowth. So usually it's essentially under that um, umbrella of dysbiosis. So rather than having a lot of the 
positive probiotics, we might see specific overgrowth in things like Klebsiella or Clostridium. So we don't know that without testing. So certainly for a lot of people, they could go through a more basic rebalancing protocol and over time, like we were talking about earlier, fix the root cause and they should be able to then tolerate adding those foods in again. But in a client who's doing testing, usually you find the answer because it's on the report. It's some kind of imbalance or species that's outgrown, like even a commensal species that's supposed to be there, but that's taken over too much space, essentially that's overgrown. Great motivation for testing because I know a lot of people can be hesitant to do it because it's expensive. It's like you can have the results right here. But like, is it though? Is three or four hundred dollars Australian dollars really that expensive when people have been unwell for decades and they spend that much on supplements that they don't even know? Like they don't even know why they're taking them. They've got no way of measuring the effect, like the effectiveness or the efficacy, and they're still going around and around in circles, suffering. Like you don't have to suffer. You don't have to put up with these symptoms. So yeah. I actually don't think yeah. now, I don't think it's expensive. Like this test could would have costed quite literally a few million dollars a few years ago until we have all the technology that we have. So right. the fact we've now got it available for what, for us, the one that we use is 349 Australian dollars. So for you guys, that would be a couple of hundred bucks. Like for me, yeah, that's yeah. actually quite It's about the same over here too. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a great investment. Same. Like you said, you're going to save, you're going to save on food, on supplements, on other health bills. Just do it and find out what's going on. But yeah, I hear that from a lot of people. They can't eat beans, legumes, all of that. So that's, that's going to be really helpful for a lot of people to hear that. Mm. It's the same with FODMAPs. Like a lot of people who can't, can't ever eat onion or can't tolerate apple. They're big ones that I also hear in clinic as well. And for me, it's like, great. That's my little project. My project is to get you back tolerating those foods. Like I was the same. I could never eat onions. They used to like come out of my skin. Like I could smell onion for days and I'd get a weird taste in my palate. I'd get quite bloated. I don't have a problem with onion now. Like it's just about, yeah, root cause, being root cause driven in your health journey. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That's great. I would I would not want to avoid those for the rest of my life. I think it's just much easier. So that's a it's great like goal hummus. to have. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know. Yeah. <laughs> know. Garlic and onions isn't everything. So yeah, exactly. And it tastes really good. I'm curious, what would you say is the number one thing people are doing wrong when it comes to gut health or like a big myth around gut microbiome? Mm, I have so many myths. This is a really great topic for us to explore. <laughs> oh, okay. I think Though, as a, as a good summary, people are trying to build the house from the roof. So in the gut health space, we've got so much knowledge and a trillion supplements and different probiotics and different leaky gut repair products, and people are starting there rather than looking at what they're eating. Like I said earlier, how many people really eat six cups of vegetables per day? Like even I don't every day. And I'm a nutritionist and I've been doing this for decades. Me either. Yeah. yeah. You really <laughs> have to think time. about it. Absolutely. And when you're time poor, like I just want to grab, you know, something easy. You never get two cups in that kind of meal. So it is, yeah. it, for me, it's about the basics. So certainly when I work with a client one-on-one, it's getting them to the point where, you know, they're just so good at building their plate. So if we go back to what we were talking about earlier. We have our two cups of non-starchies, three colors. Then we look for quality protein. So if you're um, eating animal protein, you look for the palm size of fish or the, like hopefully wild caught, if you can get access to that or the palm size of pasture, 
raised grass-fed meat. If you're plant-based, you'll do, you know, maybe half a cup of the chickpeas with a couple of tablespoons of hemp seeds and we get quality protein. Then we layer that with healthy fats. So not being afraid to add, you know, half an avocado to your breakfast or a couple of tablespoons of olive oil or one of hemp seeds to your lunch and getting these building blocks so that we are focusing on fiber, only a moderate protein intake, and then anti-inflammatory fats. So mostly omega-3s. So mostly our anti-inflammatory omega-3s. So that looks like olive oil, olives, oily fish, avocado, nuts, seeds, small amounts of quality saturated fats from grass-fed butter or ghee or coconut oil or medium chain triglyceride oil, but certainly in the keto space, people are going too crazy for saturated fats. And I see that in a lot of gut microbiome reports. I see, so hexa-LPS, we were talking about hexa-lipopolysaccharide before. That is often seen high in a diet that's too high in saturated fats, which allows the LPS to cross the intestinal barrier and enter the bloodstream. And um, so is trimethylamine. Now, TMAO appears in the news and in on social media cyclically, like kind of like coconut oil comes through and meat gets demonized and whatever happens every couple of months. So TMAO gets discussed quite frequently, at least in my space. Now we know that the diet only plays a small role, but still in someone eating excessive amounts of red meat and even eggs when they're not quality, so when they're not prioritizing pasture-raised, grass-fed, free-range, organic, then we see these pro-inflammatory metabolites again. So we have to be eating mostly anti-inflammatory omega-3s and then really, really prioritizing quality. So that shouldn't cost more, but it's just like a, I guess, a change in priorities to make sure that your diet is of the highest quality. And then that's the foundation for a healthy microbiome and certainly gets rid of some of those mistakes that you were asking me about that we've, you know, we're jumping too far ahead. We're building the house from the base rather than the roof. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. With the TMAO, what are your thoughts on that being a bigger issue when glycine is low in someone's diet? Mm. It's a tricky one because obviously we do find glycine in those animal proteins. We don't think it's good quality. It should have more glycine. Yes. Yeah, correct. Exactly. So if, even if we do have animal protein in the diet, but we're prioritizing quality, then we're getting like more glycine and then the choline and the carnitine and some of the poor quality salt that we might be using is going to have a much less impact. Of course, then if we also have a diet high in soluble fiber, we can reduce the TMAO levels. So it goes back to, yeah, really moderating your protein intake. And I don't know about you guys, but if we think about the, the palm, the palm might weigh, you know, a 120 grams, or it might be no more than say six ounces or eight ounces max in a large male. And we go to a restaurant they're double that. Like we, we're serving up double that as a minimum, mm-hmm. right? So that's totally. a huge shift for a lot of people that follow a Western diet, which is actually normally notoriously super high in protein and not very much like high quality, at least in Australia, we're moving there, but it's, it's still so far off. Most people still buy their meat from the supermarket and it's really not the most economical, environmentally sustainable or, you know, healthy way to go about purchasing your animal protein if that's what you do eat. Yeah. And then I think to go one step further with that and the protein is 
at least here, we see a lot of, you know, protein bars and powders and now there's protein chips and protein pasta and protein everything. Like I think I people are way over issues all over the map when I see that. Oh gosh. A lot of issues. Do you, do you see that where you are as well? Like these protein products? Yeah, we, we definitely do. Like protein bars are still quite popular. Most people are into their protein powders. I guess in my space, because we're LCHF, so we're lower carbohydrate, healthier fat, it's really quite moderate protein. So it's making that shift for a lot of people. But I think protein's been the poster child, right? Protein has been discussed all the time in the gym space, in the personal training space, in the fitness space. And so, yeah, I think it's like greenwashing when brands put protein chips on the packet because it's an easy sell because people think protein's going to make them fit and lean and, you know, shredded, where it's a bit of a fallacy because we actually don't need that much. We don't need anywhere near as much as what we've been convinced. Yeah. Do you have like a rough estimate of how much protein someone needs, like per body weight or? Um, I, yeah, we can do body weight or it tends to be between 20 to 30% of your daily intake. Oh, okay. So like for myself, I would eat 20% of my daily calories from protein. And then it could go as about as high as 30% for someone, usually a male who's, you know, in the gym and trying to put on muscle. Yeah, that makes sense. So I want to veer a little bit because I have so many questions for you about some (laughs) semi-controversial topics. The first one I have is I want to hear your thoughts on the reduced pollution that's happening with the climate right now and how it relates to regenerative agriculture and your thoughts on that. Yeah. So, I mean, where you guys are in Australia have fairly similar stats in that the greatest contributor to greenhouse gases is either transportation or electricity. And in Australia, transportation is second. So let's just talk about transportation as a whole. So we've obviously pretty much put the world on hold and no one's doing any travel. And certainly there's no, not very many planes in the sky. And so transportation has dropped significantly and greenhouse, greenhouse gases are set by the end of this year to look like they're going to be as the lowest they've been in a decade. So lowest ever in the last 10 years. And so what's changed? The one thing that's changed is that transportation is significantly lower. What hasn't changed is the number of cows on the planet, the number of vegans on the planet, the, the, the amount of methane that's going into the air from the cow farts, which is that ridiculous conversation that's still being spoken about. And I know that meat is transported. So hear me out. I know that meat is transported. So meat does add to that transportation contribution to greenhouse gases, but it's like, you you can't blame the meat. It's not the cows and the methane, which we actually really need to recycle into the soil so that we've got nutrient-dense soil, so we've got nutrient-dense food to feed the planet. Like the whole concept of getting people to be aware that one, factory farming is horrific and we have to stop it, but two, that there is another way, that moving to the regenerative agriculture where we're acknowledging the systems that we have on earth and that symbiotic relationship between animals and the soil and the sky and the air that we breathe is where we need to go. Now, the argument is that it doesn't exist or we don't have enough of it right now. And that's true. It's very rare. But like anything, in time, if awareness is increased and we stop 
or we stopped having these myth, mythical conversations about cow farts, then we'll really understand what's going on with the world and that factory farming is, is a, a huge issue, but it's really coming back to looking after how we can look after the soil. Because you guys have probably seen the research, we've only really got one more generation of crops to run through the soil before it's like it's dead. So we need to be loving our soil and having a system that feeds the soil, but then we can use that to feed the planet long-term. So of course it's about demanding better protein and it is about like changing the way you shop and going to butchers and farmers markets and direct to the farm, but it's not about the cows, it's about transportation. So hopefully what we've learned from COVID-19 is that, you know, what we were doing, how we were operating was destroying the environment and we can, you know, allow others to truly see what the cause of climate change has been. That's awesome. Yeah. It was Great, exactly awesome. what I was hoping you would say. And we're hoping this is this pause. I know the poor cows. We hope that this pause is an opportunity that will shed some light on that and we can start creating some better habits with just sourcing better meat at the very least. Really we can awesome. only hope. <laughs> Yeah. The optimist in me hopes that things will change, but the pessimist knows that we're doing things the way we are because of the political system and the cost, you know, the, the dollar at the end of the day, but there is a way. So we'll stay positive. Sure. We just have to keep educating. Yeah. So somewhat related. So if we're maybe reducing our food intake, because maybe we don't need a 12 ounce steak when we go out to a dinner, can we veer into the, the realm of fasting and your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I think it's really important that we define fasting first, because there are a few different iterations of it. And um, there's a lot of confusion about what that actually means. So first and foremost, fasting is what we all do normally. So we all finish dinner, and then we fast until breakfast the next day. So it's a really normal process where we rest our digestion, we move into that repair stage, and it's, like I said, something that everybody already does. So how I get my clients to start to think about their fast is to calculate what your normal fasting window is. So simple maths, if you finish eating at 8 and you start eating at 8, then you're already doing a 12-hour fast. That's the minimum because less than that takes away some of your repair and your rest and digest time. So often the first step we're making is getting someone to tweak their meal times either side of the day or a bit of a combo of both to make sure that they are then getting that 12 hours. That might be enough. You might stay there, you might feel great, and you might then have three meals a day in your 12-hour eating window. The research on intermittent fasting, which is a longer fast, usually 16 hours in length, we have to remember is largely done on college-aged athletic males. Males can usually fast. They could almost do, if they were well, 16-8 every day. So a 16-hour fast, an eight-hour window, and they probably only need to eat two meals in that window because it's a lot smaller than 12. What's happened though with Michael Mosley and the incredible information that we've got around fasting is that everyone's jumped into it and females have lost their menstrual cycle or they've, you know, impacted their fertility or they've just felt really lethargic or they haven't recovered well from training. And so again, we've tried to find help in the extremes. So only if my female client is super well, not in her preconception planning, not pregnant, not breastfeeding, has balanced hormones and everything else points to yes, does she start to experiment with say 16, eight, maybe twice a week, no more than that. So we're super conservative so that we can spend three months checking in with all markers of health, you know, energy, hormones, recovery, 
sleep, everything that we want to have a look at to make sure that that fasting protocol is pointing to yes, is serving our health journey. I don't think it suits everyone. And, um, you know, I think that we just need to almost like you guys buy a hack. You've got to treat it as a little bit of trial and error to test out what version of fasting works for you. And you do have to track your energy and your sleep and your hormones and your exercise recovery. And, you know, you use your menstrual cycle as your monthly report card because if things change or your hormones go offline, that is a big red flashing light that you need to pay attention to. And usually for women in that case, it's about, fasting less and eating more, not the opposite. So it really is super individual. But in summary, guys can technically go for it. And as females, at least until they go through menopause, need to be much more conservative. I like the report card idea. Tracking Mm. your cycle, your report card cycle, and I think stool is probably the other biggest one. Looking at your your cycle. Those are your report cards. (laughs) And and then ignoring it can often lead to huge issues down the track because then six months later, you've got this bomb to deal with when, you know, you might've picked up a few signs and symptoms straight away. Right. Yeah. It makes so much sense. I personally feel like I do well around 12 to 14 hours, but, but if everything is like on point, like my sleep, my diet, my exercise, like if I'm stressed, I can't even do 14. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's where the biohacking definitely comes in playing with that. Definitely. And, and maybe setting a, setting a goal that you might work towards, but being okay to change that if you wake up and you're feeling hungry or if you're feeling a little bit anxious or you're noticing not is not quite right. Like you don't have to commit to 16 and then do it until you're blue in the face starving. And <laughs> like, let's be a little right. more relaxed about it. And remember that health is found in the gray and being intuitive will save you from a whole lot of problems down the line. Yeah. Being flexible is so helpful because you just never know what's going to pop up. And if we stop listening to our bodies, if we stop being flexible, who knows what's going to smack you in the face. Yeah, for sure. So you did bring up the preconception program kind of thing. I know you work with a lot of clients on that. And Mm -hmm. is that typically three months, did you say? Like before a woman would start trying to conceive? Yeah. Ideally, (laughs) ideally I'd like six because six months means we start with a microbiome test and have time to shift things if it wasn't so great. Because we know that in an ideal world, when we have a vaginal birth, we pass our microbiome onto our baby. So having the beautiful foundation is so important. And three months might not be enough time, right? It is if you've got a great score, if you have a 98 out of 100 or something, brilliant. But if not, it's better to have more time. But three months is when we start to add in the right prenatals. So we might be looking at, you know, adding in the right type of um, dietary folate, but also some activated folate. So we have that seed planted for the early stage pregnancy, for the nervous system and for the brain development. But also we know that a female preconception needs a lot more of the DHA omega. So we need to start to look at, all right, if we can't get access to lots of wild-caught fish, then we probably will be looking at a, a DHA supplement, with it, whether fish-based or algae-based, if, if we are more plant-based. And then probiotics, we're really starting to look after the microbiome. So again, we're starting pregnancy in front rather than getting to 20 weeks and realizing that we've got you know a lot of work to do, where 20 weeks for a lot of people is where there's another phase of looking at things like iron and and nutrients that might be becoming depleted because you're literally starting to share your stores with the growing humans. So, you know, when you start early, you kind of got phase one prep and then halfway through, you're probably re-looking at things again as you move through that latter second trimester and into your third trimester because, you know, 
myself included, like it can be really hard to maintain iron levels. And um, if you don't look at it, it, it ends up being at like infusion level. And you really want to try and avoid that because you not only feel exhausted, but you have to deal with iron infusions and often the inflammation that creates from the synthetic iron. So just staying on top of things and looking at how you can do it naturally with maybe a couple of supplements is the best way to approach things. Um, And that sets you up for beyond as well, because if you've got a healthy microbiome and you pass it on to your baby, then your feeding journey is going to be much easier. So you'll, you know, you'll avoid things like mastitis. And then when your baby is six months and you're starting to add in solid foods, they've got a robust microbiome. So you're not having to deal with food allergies or intolerances or, you know, a lot of the trouble that we see in that first phase of life, which I actually think could be avoided if we start our pregnancy healthy and if we manage that across the whole journey. It's so important. I'm curious, do you find it's hard to get women on board with that? Like I know I see some women that are like, oh, I want to start trying today. Is it hard to convince them? Like, hey, let's take a step back and do the preparation. I probably, I'd say I I operate a little bit differently. If someone wants to start planning now or they already are, I I very rarely convince them not to because their own personal journey. But often when they've got the education or certainly when they see their microbiome report, they have the epiphany themselves that maybe they want to actually slow it down by three months. I don't believe it's my job to tell them that, but certainly when you've got the information, it can obvious, it can honestly be quite apparent that that's the best decision. But I still work with yeah, people, yeah. like one client comes to mind who she's already in the middle of trying and she's not having much luck and she's come to me and we're just doing what we can do now, getting her off her elevate, which is her poor quality folate that she's not going to convert and absorb and, and changing a few little things with her blood sugar control and her her gut health, what she's doing just from a food and probiotic point of view is still going to make all the difference. And she was still tracking along her own sort of timeline. And that was cool. I was really happy to jump in halfway and help. Yeah. Awesome. So because you were a mother, you've given birth recently. Can you share the postpartum stuff? I know it was really important to you to breastfeed through that full journey. And then can you talk about some of the struggles that you had Mm. in pregnancy? (laughs) I am one of those people, one of those mothers that will get punched in the face by someone one day because I had a really, really great pregnancy. I actually loved being pregnant. I've truly never felt better. Oh, wow. Amazing. Um, Yeah. I had a um, four-hour natural home birth and Grace was incredible to nurse. Like literally we did not have a single issue. I just didn't love breastfeeding. I, I think it's because I'm a I, like I'm a working mama and I'm not very good at sitting still. I, I just didn't I didn't enjoy it. Like when you do your research when you're pregnant, you expect I had expected breastfeeding to be this like spiritual journey. <laughs> and I laugh at myself now, but it just wasn't. And I mm-hmm. totally appreciate that many find it so amazing. And I've got mums in my mum's group who are still going, but I got to 12 months and I was like, I, you know, I just, Grace was weaning anyway, naturally. It wasn't like I pulled her off the boob and made her stop, but we decided together that 12 months was more than adequate. Now in a, well, you know, the World Health Organization do suggest that we go up to two years and, you know, I support what they say, but for me personally, we're going to be looking at having another baby later this year. And it was really important for me to have time with my body to rebuild 
to get my hormones rebalanced, to get my iron levels great, just to to look after myself rather than giving out like I had for a couple of years through pregnancy and nursing before I fell pregnant again. So not everyone's journey is that. You know, some people have two or three years between children so they can breastfeed for much longer. But I think the 12 months was really important to me to set Grace's microbiome and her immune system up. And truthfully, she's not had more than a sniffle in the last 14 months. And I put her to sleep with some essential oils going through her little sleep machine and she's right as rain. So her immune system is just like her mummy's, um, although she was born <laughs> with that and mine was created over a you know number of decades of hard work. And um, we've not even had a feeding issue. Like I started her on solids quite early, but, you know, now she eats anything and everything. And I'm trying to think, there's one thing she didn't like, which was fried tempeh and I tasted it and it was disgusting. So I don't blame her, <laughs> but she eats everything. She has good taste then. Yeah. Not really. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you fry tempeh in nothing, it just doesn't taste like anything. And great. She's just so robust and healthy and I've, I've actually loved the journey. I've loved the journey of solid foods as well as a nutritionist, like finding new ways for a 14 month old to eat vegetable has become like my little hobby, my little pastime. It's good fun. Yeah. I love it. That's amazing. I mean, obviously it's a product of your hard work and dedication to your own health. So, so awesome. Congrats on your beautiful girl. Yeah. Thank you. It's adorable. Mm. So I have one more question for you. We like to ask our guests at the end of our interviews, if you could give our audience one piece of advice that they could start working on today at home in isolation, because that's where we all are right now, what's something they can do today that will start to optimize their health? It could be Eat vegetables for breakfast. Oh, good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a great one. What vegetables do you eat day. for breakfast? Uh, I often, I either have, you know, an omelet with maybe some kale and some pumpkin and some tomato sauteed through, or on work days, I'll have a smoothie and we usually put in like some frozen zucchini or spinach. So super simple, especially midweek. I think we just need breakfast to be simple and easy to prepare, but it, it is possible. A frittata you could have made on Sunday if you're time poor. There's ways to make it work. Yeah, I agree. It's great. Yeah. Kick off the day with veggies and then it'll just kind of roll into your other meals, hopefully. Yeah. It does. It absolutely does. Awesome. Steph, thank you so much. You shared so much wonderful information. It was a pleasure to speak to you today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed that. Thank Thanks for having me. Thank you everyone for tuning in. We will see you next time. Love this episode of the Biohacker Babes podcast? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We truly appreciate your support. Until then, happy biohacking. Bye.